The unsurpassed penetrating and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it, we can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So what I'm going to talk about this morning, I guess this is my title, is Burying the Hatchet. I think we, you know, many of us know this phrase. Um, and I went to Wikipedia to find out a bit about it. But apparently it's, uh, it seems it particularly started with the Iroquois Federacy and other native tribes in the Eastern America of that time. Um, they had this custom of burying weapons after the cessation of hostilities. So they're fighting against each other. And uh, I guess at some point they kind of came to their senses and said, this isn't really doing any good. Let's stop. And, and what they would do is they would have the ceremonies, the opposing parties, and they would bury in the ground uh, an axe or other... Um, implements of war. Okay. So it, it's kind of been passed on in our culture and, and this idiom is used today to signify the making of peace. Okay. Um, this is something interesting. According to Wikipedia, uh, in uh, Delaware, a town called Georgetown in Delaware, um, there's, there's a festival that's celebrated two days after an election. And I think it's, I don't know if it's all elections, um, but the two days has to do with it used to take two days to get the results. Well, actually, it's getting worse uh, <laughs> in terms of getting the results. But I think they may do this to this present day. They, they have this uh, festival and they have a parade and the, those who won the election are in the parade. But but what happens is part of it is that um, the uh, chairs of the Sussex County, so I guess Georgetown, Delaware is in Sussex County, the chairs of the Democratic and Republican parties, um, they do this bearing of the axe ceremony where there's a tub full of sand and each of them buries an axe. And the idea behind it is uh, making peace after the, the election and moving on. Okay, wouldn't that be nice if we did something like that after a hot and contentious national election? I don't know. You know, we need to do something. Um, so I think it's essential in Buddhist training and just plain living that we bury the hatchet with some of our issues that are really not making us happy people. You know, Buddhism should make us happy people. And if we hold tightly to some things, we're not going to be happy. Of course, this is easier said than done. And sometimes grievous harm has been caused. Okay, um, And so it may not be so simply doable. Um, in uh, a Buddhist context, burying the hatchet doesn't 
necessarily mean that karmic consequences are wiped away. You know, there's some kind of magic going on. Uh, we get the consequences of our actions. It's fundamental to our understanding of the way things are. Um, we uh, are the owners of our karma, and we may need to do something to reconcile what we have done. Or sometimes we just have to live with what we've done. You know. Um, so the Buddha very wisely taught about forgiveness, and he taught about reconciliation. So for, for this, those particular things, I'm going to use this quote from this article by Tani Saro Bhikkhu, um, an American Theravadan monk. Um, he's a translator, and anyways, he writes a lot of things. Um, so he wrote this article called Reconciliation, Right and Wrong. And he says in the article, and I'm going to be quoting and paraphrasing here, the Pali word for forgiveness, I can't pronounce it, it's K-H-A-M-A. Okay, that's the Pali word. So apparently that, that word also means earth. Uh, a mind like the earth, this is Tanisara Bhikkhu saying, a mind like the earth is non-reactive and unperturbed. When you forgive me for harming you, you decide not to retaliate, to seek no revenge. You don't have to like me. And this is Tani Saro speaking, not me, because you can like me. Um, <laughs> uh, you simply unburden yourself of the weight of resentment and cut the cycle of retribution that would otherwise keep us, and this is great, ensnarled in an ugly samsaric wrestling match. Um, this is a gift you can give us both, totally on your own, without my even having to know or understand what you've done. So, you know, forgiveness can be one-sided. Um, it's better if it's both-sided, but it can be one-sided. Uh, in the Dhammapada, in the twin verses, the Buddha says, He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. Uh, what I think is really interesting is that thing about defeated. Um, for those who, who carry on like this, for those not carrying on, excuse me, like this, so it's important. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. And then... The Buddha says, hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. And then he goes on to say, many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. You know, the clock's ticking. We just don't know how much time we have. So Tani Tsarabiko continues now talking about reconciliation. He says, reconciliation means a, re a return to amicability, and that requires more than forgiveness. It requires the, the reestablishing of trust. If I deny my responsibility for my actions or maintain that I did no wrong, there's no way we can be reconciled. Similarly, if I insist that your feelings don't matter or that you 
have no right to hold me to your standards of right and wrong. You, you, you won't trust me not to hurt you again. To regain your trust, I have to show my respect for you and for, your mutu- and for our mutual standards of what is and is not acceptable behavior. Uh, also, you have to admit that I hurt you and that I was wrong to do so. And thirdly, uh, and to promise to exercise restraint in the future. At the same time, you have to inspire my trust, too, in the respectful way you conduct the process of reconciliation. Only then can our friendship regain a solid footing. So reconciliation is a two-way street. Um, Both sides have to do something, have to give something. Um, So the Buddha also said, sometimes disputes cannot be reconciled. Sometimes it's just such a grievous wrong. And and we live in societies of laws, and there's good reason for most of them. And if you break a law, there's consequences. I think the thing we got to get more and more right is not holding innocent people for for things they didn't do. Um, Tani Sarabiko ends this article by saying, there are times when one or both parties are unwilling to exercise the honesty and restraint that true reconciliation requires. Even then, though, forgiveness is still an option. This is why the distinction between reconciliation and forgiveness is so important. It encourages us not to settle for mere forgiveness when the genuine healing of right reconciliation is possible. And it allows us to be generous with our forgiveness even when it is not. So I just thought that was very interesting and you know, well, well written. In our precept ceremony, okay, here, the Abbey, we, we talk about contrition and conversion. So contrition is the admitting to ourselves that we've made a mistake, we've done wrong, um, we've done something harmful. Uh, and conversion is the changing of our habits that cause these wrong, harmful actions. Okay? Sorry is good, uh, and there's something more than sorry. We need to change Um, or karma just keeps rolling along. So we need to change things about ourselves. In Buddhism, there's an interesting phrase that the Buddha used when talking about disputes and arguments in the monastic sangha. And and in reading this, I realized that, you know, the Buddha must have had a heck of a time. It was not an easy thing you know, I mean, I'm sure he had good, earnest people, but there was a lot of difficulties, and you know, it was not easy for him. So, um, in settling some of the disputes in the monastic, monastic sangha, the Buddha used the term "covering over with grass." It's somewhat similar to burying the hatchet. Okay? So, the Buddha said that when monks have Uh, taken to quarreling and are deep in disputes. Uh, Those monks may have done many things improper for a monk. So, you know, they're having these heated arguments and they're, 
I don't know. He, he says sometimes they came to blows. It's not so good. <laughs> um, maybe we've made some progress. Um, so what the Buddha said, you know, is that, so the argument isn't going anywhere, and, they, and they're just getting, you know, more and more hostile with each other. So what the Buddha said is, you know, what you got to do then is that a wise monk on each side, so you got the different sides, but a wise monk on each side of the dispute announces that if it is approved by the Sangha, then they shall um, confess by the method of covering over with grass. Um, so they're going to confess any offenses of those venerable ones and in any of their own offenses, okay? And in this way, they, they left the dispute. So they, could, they couldn't agree upon things, I mean, which, which happens, but, but it was a way to move on from the dispute. So, you know, it's, it's similar to the bearing of the hatchet. Um, right. There was an exception, though, for this. Um, he said, the Buddha said, if there was a serious offense... Or uh, if what had been done um, was connected with the lay sangha, it had to be worked out. Because, you know, the Buddha really valued the lay sangha. It reminds me of Reverend Master Ji and the way she really, you know, had a high esteem for lay training. Um, right, so, so then those had to be wor- worked out and he just couldn't cover it with grass. So, um, and the Buddha himself, he very occasionally and rarely had asked someone to leave who was in the Sangha. You know, they weren't owning up to what they had done. Uh, They were causing trouble. There was at least one instance when he, this person would not leave the monastic, uh, the, the monastery grounds, and so he had a bunch of the monks pick him up and put him outside the gate. I mean, I'm sure they did it as gently as they could, but, you know, they had to do something. Um, yeah, so, so forgiveness and reconciliation are not always easy matters. Okay? Um, I saw this uh, BBC interview. Um, and I don't know if it's what you know, made it click in my mind, this, this topic, burying the hatchet. But, but I saw, heard this really, actually, I heard it. It was, it was a very in, interesting interview with a woman, Catherine Switzer. Okay, if, if, she's a famous marathon runner. Okay, uh, she was a sports writer, and she was found, the founder of an organization called 261 Fearless. There's a reason why you have 261 there, which I'll tell you. Um, and she's done a lot to empower people who, you know, have been in um, oppressed conditions. So Catherine's now 75 years old. And what I wanted to tell you a little bit about is the story of her running the Boston Marathon. Okay. When Catherine was a, was a little, was, was going from grade school to high school, she came up to her father and she said, I want to be a cheerleader. And he looked at her and he said, well, you can do that if you want. He said, but why don't you be the person that people cheer for, that the cheerleaders cheer for? And he said, why don't you take up running? So with her father's uh, help, she took up running. 
And at that point in time, there were no uh, women's track teams. Um, there was no women's cross-country teams, and women did not run marathons. Well, she had this, uh, she, she went to the University of Syracuse, and again, no women's track team, no women's cross-country team. But she, she said, I'm going to run. And she went out to the track team, and um, they let, him, let her run with them. And, and there was this one coach, Arnie, who she became very good friends with. And she was quite a good runner. You know. So at one point, uh, and this is before the Boston Marathon, Marathon in 1976, she um, said, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. And her friend Arnie said, you can't do that. Women can't run it. Because women couldn't run the Boston Marathon. The only woman that had run it up to that point was one woman who did not actually register. She just jumped out at the start and started to run and run, ran the whole thing. <laughs> so she, uh, you have to sign up to run it. You didn't, in those days, there weren't the qualifying races that you had to do prior to it, but you had to sign up. And she always signed her name, Kay Switzer, okay? So her registration went through, and she, she was sent a number, 261. So her organization is 261 Fearless. And um, she's going to run the Boston Marathon. Actually, her, her coach friend, Arnie, said, you can't run that. You know, women can't run a marathon. And she basically said, this is before the marathon, she said, watch me. And so she ran with him, and she ran a marathon distance plus another five or ten miles. And he said, yeah, you can run the Boston Marathon. <laughs> so I guess this sometimes happened. Groups of people, you know, kind of enter the marathon together, kind of help each other. So um, she signs up for the marathon. Arnie, her coach, signs up. One of the runners, male runners on the cross-country team at Syracuse signs up, and her boyfriend, who happens to be an ex-All-American football player from Syracuse, signs up. Okay, they, they get there, you know, and she, um, I mean, a lot of people are really intrigued in seeing a woman in the, you know, in the crowd of runners and, you know, actually treat her kind of nicely, but there were some, I think, some uh, people from the press who were kind of giving her a bad time and you know, trying to, what's your motivation here? And she said, actually, she wasn't trying to prove anything by running. She just uh, was a marathon runner and wanted to run the Boston Marathon. Okay, so they start the race, and they're about at the four-mile mark, and then all of a sudden, this vehicle... Uh, drives up in front of them and is kind of blocking their way and this gentleman gets out of the vehicle um, and uh, he, he's kind of big you know for her, and he grabs her and he's trying to rip off her her number he says you can't you can't run the Boston Marathon this isn't for women you can't you know you can't run this and it's pretty aggressive you know and, he, and he's trying to knock her out of the way well um, Catherine's uh, boyfriend, who's the ex-All-American football player, comes flying in then and, and does a body block on this person and knocks him out of the way. Now, fortunately, he didn't hurt him, but he knocks him out of the way. And they take off. They just take off on, you know, on the race, and they continue to run. Um, 
and um, she's kind of, this guy was so aggressive with her, and she'd never experienced that before in her life. And so, um, she's, you know, she's kind of scared and a little bit shaking from this. Um, and then she gets angry. <laughs> well, when she hits the four-mile mark, she realizes, I can't be, you know, I can't keep up with my anger. I've got to put all my energy into running. So she, dro- she drops it, and, and, and kind of in her mind, she reviews things a bit. And she says, well, this guy, you know, who um, tried to stop me from running, he's just a product of his time. You know, it's, it's what a lot of people are thinking at the time. You know, it doesn't really explain his aggressiveness. But, um, and, um, yeah, so she just kind of comes to peace with all that, and she runs the whole marathon. At one point, she says to her friend Arnie, which is her coach, she says that um, I got to, um, you know, I've got to finish this marathon, even if I have to go in crawling, because um, otherwise people are going to say, you know, I just, no, I didn't, she didn't finish, or she just did this to, you know, um, I don't know, get in people's face or whatever. But anyway, she finishes the marathon, okay? And uh, then uh, it, the, night, the nice part about it, when she finishes too, she feels this debt of um, gratitude that she, she owes to her coach. So they're running together, you know, right towards the end, and, and, and they all say, they say, well, let's all, you know, finish together. But what happens at the very end is she and, and the... the uh, cross-country runner because her boyfriend's been left miles back. Um, they drop back and let Arnie go f- finish before before them because they, they wanted to honor him. Um, so after this, she's involved in getting, getting the women the right to run marathons, and she's successful. Um, you know, now uh, I read something that Half the people that run marathons are at any given race are women, and she did this all over the world. And um, the other interesting thing, and this is maybe where it ties into to burying the hatchet, she actually becomes friends with this guy who who was he was the um, race manager or something. You know, he had a high-ranking position. They actually become friends after a bit of time, and and she's with him. Uh, just before he dies. So, so, so somehow, you know, this really kind of aggressive uh, and the barrier there, she was able, uh, he was able to break through it. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really interesting interview. I, um, so let me just end by saying um, we all have things, opinions, views, old hurts, you know, stuff in our closets, uh, which we hold on to tightly. I mean, it's kind of a human condition in some ways. With our practice, though, which is one of letting go, especially letting go of the tight grip on things, uh, we in time, because sometimes it takes time, need to come to a place of peace with these things these various things that we're holding on to. Um, 
As the Buddha said, many do not realize that we, we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. Um, it's, it's a nice factor of, factor of aging, I think, um, that we realize we've got to let go of some of these things. Or we can't even remember them anymore. Like, kind of like, you know, I mean, I find sometimes I try to think, what's the deal there? You know, why did I get so, you know, uptight? And, um, and, and there are awful things that happen to people and they just can't. It's not like, boom, forgiveness, you know. But as Tani Saro Bhikkhu said, maybe we can't reconcile something, um, but we, we can forgive, okay? uh, We can't bury the hatchet for other people. You know, it's, it, it's each of us individually that has to do that. Um, but we can bury the hatchet for ourselves. Sometimes it might be very painful, but I think you kind of got to ask yourself, what's more painful, the burying of the axe or the suffering of holding on uh, whatever it is. Because sometimes it, that holding on is much more painful. And again, I, I don't want to make, you know, simplify this because, you know, it's just, I mean, the things that are going on now in our world, it's just awful, awful things that have really um, deep karmic consequences. Um, and, um, you know, there, there is a way to forgive at the very least. Okay, thank you.